grateful we are, Patty. She had a really, really bad day Wednesday, and then Thursday it was just like, it was like everything just switched. And those of you that have been through surgeries like that, you know the third day is pretty much the worst. And uh, But she's on the mend and doing well, and uh, we're trusting the Lord for continued and thorough healing. Um, the bone that was broken on the outside of her ankle, the fibula, was pretty well mangled up. And so the doctor had to kind of piece it back together as best he could and do some bone grafting and whatnot. But uh, when he came out uh, Sunday, he said it uh, the surgery went better than he had hoped. So um, so we're just trusting the Lord for that. We thank you, though, for your, your kindness to us. Um, we had some uh, family members get a hold of us a couple of days ago and said, we'd like to come and help. And we said, no, we appreciate that, you know. But they don't realize we have a family. They don't, they're not believers and they don't understand the family of God. And uh, so, I mean, we were so well taken care of that we just told them, you can come and say hi, but everybody's got us covered. So thank you so much for that. And uh, we praise God for that. And just one last thing, we do have our meeting in the fellowship hall after service today. And it really is our desire. If you're not, if if you're able to stay, even if you're new to us, if you're looking for what God is doing in this church, that's a great time to come and stay and have a meal with us, get acquainted with us, and hear what we're what we've done in the past year and what we plan on doing in the next couple of years. And it gives you, a, a, you know, just a better insight into who we are as a as a church. So we want to welcome you to stay. All right. So, having said that, I want to talk to you um, using the sermon I had planned to preach last Sunday. And uh, so if you take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 8, we're going through this series on Jeremiah. And I want to talk to you about the treachery of sin. And sin is treacherous. I mean, it's not just some little thing. And oftentimes people will make light of it. And the, the lost and the spirit of this age makes fun of it. Thinks it's, it's uh, something to be laughed at. It's not a trifling thing. It's treacherous. Because, number one, it's rebellion against a good, kind, and holy God. As I've said before, God is not a bad God that we're trying to appease. God is a good God, and we're the problem. He's kind, but he is holy. And secondly, it's destructive to the sinner and those who are sinned against. It not only has an effect and ruination of your own life, but it has an effect on other people. And thirdly, it enslaves the sinner as an unsatisfied taskmaster. It enslaves the sinner. Dave Wilkinson tells the story about a man named Reynald III. He was a 4th century duke in what is now Belgium. He was grossly overweight. And Reynald was commonly called by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. And after a violent quarrel... 
Reynold's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. He captured him, but he did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in the Newkirk Castle and promised him that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult for most people because the room had several windows and a door of normal size. And none of them were locked or barred. The problem was Reynold's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, he grew even fatter. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. But he stayed in that room for 10 years and was not released until Edward died in battle. But by then his health was so ruined that he died within a year a prisoner of his own appetite. That is the nature of sin. It is when we give over ourselves to our appetites, we become enslaved to them. It's treacherous. It will ruin us. And that's why it's so dangerous. Whenever anyone engages in sinful conduct or Habits or thoughts, it feeds an appetite that can never be satisfied. Have you ever noticed that? It's just never enough. It's like an addiction to sugar makes a person crave more sweets. I, you know, I love donuts. I love two donuts even more. I love three even more than that. Give me an eight. <laughs> But after uh, an ingesting a full sleeve of Oreos, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It, it's just never enough. And that's what Jeremiah 8 is talking about. Although God had warned them, he now goes into more detail regarding the coming judgment. The Lord reveals how the sins of Judah enslaved its people and its leaders. No warning could suffice to break the bondage. And neither will the warnings of Scripture set us free until we surrender to Jesus as Lord and receive the Holy Spirit. And only then can we fight the ageless battle of evil within and without. Now the chapter begins with God speaking, and I'm going to be using the voice translation today because it gives the reader an understanding of who is speaking and in the in the context, I thought it was very helpful. So if you're following and the words don't follow exactly the same, that's the reason, okay? I'm using the voice. Chapter 8, verse 1, it, it starts with the eternal one is speaking. When that sad day comes, the graves of my people will be desecrated. The remains of Judah's kings and her leaders, of priests and prophets 
of the citizens of my city, Jerusalem, will be pulled out of their graves. Their bones will be spread out over the ground, exposing them to the sun, to the moon, and the stars of heaven. And the heavenly hosts, which our enemies loved, served, chased after, sought out, and worshipped. These bones will not be gathered or buried again. But they will be scattered like dung on the ground. As for the survivors of this wicked nation, they will prefer death to life in all the places where I have, I have driven them. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a great 19th century preacher. And he comments on this text. He says, the prophet Jeremiah had to foretell terrible judgments upon the guilty people who had been often warned, but who had at last gone beyond all bearing and were about to be destroyed by the Babylon. It was a very common practice to bury treasures with the bodies of kings. And so when in any land was invaded by foreign kings, they broke open the tombs, and searched for hidden valuables. And it was a sign of the special humiliation that they had conquered that nation. In this case, it was foretold that this desecration would not only take place with regard to the bones of the kings, in whose tombs the greatest treasure might be expected to be found, but the bones of princes and priests and prophets And people were all alike to be brought forth. It's significant that the bones would be exposed to the sun and the moon and the host of heaven, which Jeremiah said they loved and served, which they have gone after and sought, and which they have worshipped. You know, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God and began to worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and began to worship the sun and the moon and the stars and animals and so forth. It was a judgment to demonstrate to those gods which the people had served could not save them from destruction. We're not talking about Babylon We're talking about the people of God had forsaken the worship of God and worshipped these false things. You cannot save yourself from destruction. The Apostle Peter in the book of Acts said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But today people look to horoscopes and Scientology and to natural evolution for answers, but their worship, they are worshiping when they're looking to these things. They're looking for solutions, but in, in ultimately they're looking to worship themselves and looking for answers in every other place. But people who search for these things, if they don't find Christ, will be lost forever. And so it goes on in verse 4. 
the eternal one continues to speak. He says, tell my people that these are my words. When people stumble and fall, don't they get up again? When people are lost, don't they try to find their way back? So why have these people turned away from me and refused to come back? They hang on to lies that lead them further away instead of embracing the truth and coming home to me. I listen intently for someone, anyone, to speak the truth, but it never happens. No one corrects his lies. No one regards his evil, saying, what have I done? Instead, everyone keeps running farther down that path away from me. Like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her time to migrate. The dove, the swallow, and the crane all take flight when the time is right, but not so with my people. Let me remind you that God governs the universe and the creatures of the earth through natural laws or physical laws. Like instinct. The stork knows when to migrate. Fish can be spawned in a river in Idaho, swim to the ocean, three years later swim back and find the spot where they were spawned. How do they do that? Fish don't have very large brains, last I looked. They know by instinct because God programmed these laws into them. They're not obeyed by choice, but rather determined by the sheer force of God's decree. They are not laws that tell the creation what it ought to do, but rather reveals what happens in nature. Chemistry, aerodynamics, physics, and the instinct of the animal kingdom are examples of how God rules and governs creation. But... He governs human beings in a different way. He command, his commands are not saying, I, you're going to do this. But his commands are, you ought to do this. But leaves the choice to us what we're going to do. He leaves that choice and the result is either blessing or judgment. And he says, I look at my people. I mean, a stork knows where to go, but my people whom I've revealed myself to and shared with them my wisdom have turned their back on me. They do not care about the eternal one's commands. You know Roger Staubach, who led the Dallas Cowboys to a Super Bowl victory in 1971, admitted that his position as a quarterback, who did not call his own signals, was a source of trial for him. I played quarterback for the famous Mountain Home Tigers. I called my own signals. I wish somebody else had. I got very predictable. But anyway, Coach Landry sent in every play, and it was a frustration for him because he was used to running the show. And he told Roger when to pass, when to run, 
And only in emergency situations could he change the play. And even though Roger considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy, pride said that he should be able to run his own team. He had a decision to make. Would he allow pride to rule his life and ignore his coach, making himself the star? Or would he listen to the coach and do what he wanted? And this is what Staubach said later on. He said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. A little bit bigger than that in the game of life, isn't it? Verse 8. How can any of you say we are wise because we have the eternal law? But how little do you care about the truth? A pen in the hand of your teachers drips nothing but lies. The day is coming when those so-called wise teachers will be put to shame. Their lives will be shattered when they are captured and taken away. And why will this happen? Because they have rejected and perverted my word. Are these the works of wise men? You know, our nation abounds with false teachers and those who pervert the plain teaching of God's word. It is adjusted and revised or often utterly ignored to favor the viewpoint of those who wish to remain in sin. The Bible still lays out what things are sinful. It's plain, right in print. So do not be deceived or deceive yourself by trying to find someone who will change the meaning of the scripture to suit your own desires. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. And that is obviously the generation that we live in. But God continues in verse 10. This is why I give their wives away to intruders and their property to invaders. Greed has corrupted this culture from the least to the greatest. Everyone is tainted with lust for what they do not deserve. The prophets and priests are no better. Their lives reek with deceit to heal the brokenness of my people. They offer superficial words they say peace peace as if all is well but there is no peace do they feel any shame for their disgraceful deeds absolutely not my very own have forgotten how to blush and so it is that they will fall among the fallen and be defeated when the time comes they will stumble beneath the weight of my punishment. The harvest will soon be gone, a thing of the past. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree. 
Even the leaves will wither and fall. For what I have given so generously, I will now take away. I think Cliff can tell you in in his field of counseling that the big deal in the last generation has been to take away the embarrassment and guilt of sin. People shouldn't feel bad. God says you've forgotten how to blush. We ought to be embarrassed. We ought to feel shame. It ought to motivate us not to stay in that shame and kick ourselves and beat ourselves. But it should drive us to the one who can cleanse and forgive. My poor wife has been beating herself up all week. She knew she did a dumb thing. And she has just been suffering terribly with guilt over that. And she needs to forgive herself. And rest in the forgiveness of the Almighty who has already forgiven her. He's shown her that forgiveness from the very moment Don found her. <laughs> and Or was it Nicole? Whoever it was. Don found her, Nicole. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I mean, he just took care of it. It was like, okay, that was not good, but I've got you. And it's been a string of that kind of stuff. And I'm... That's the way it is. We turn these things over to God in repentance, receive his forgiveness. But we ought to blush when we blow it. Some people in the land believe they know God's ways, but they don't. In fact, the ways they twist God's words and perform empty rituals only make things worse. Over and over again, prophets such as Jeremiah have attempted to describe the devastation that will result from the actions of those who refuse to listen to and really know God. As the invading army comes across the borders, then comes the realization that God had said and the prophets had said and spoken in his name, and now it's coming true. And guess what? God may long to bring his people close to forgive and to restore them, but it will not happen because they have refused both his forgiveness and his warnings. And so the enemy from the north is on the move and it becomes too late. For you younger people, that's a replica of an old clock we used to have when I was growing up. Okay? So you, most of you know what that was. Now, Jeremiah continues in verse 14, but this is what the people are saying. Why are we still sitting here exposed and waiting for death to come? Let's get together and run to the walled cities and die there. We are without hope because the eternal, our God, has pronounced our judgment. He has given us a cup of bitter poison to drink because we have sinned against him. We are counting on peace, but none came. We waited for a time of healing, but now all we have is terror. We can hear the snorts of their war horses as they charge into Dan and the thunder of their hooves and Noise of their nays, and the whole land trembles. They have come to devour us. 
our land and everything in it, the city and all of her citizens. And so what it is here, the people now realize the words of the prophets have come true, but it's too late. And that's the nature of judgment. Warnings do not make people believe and repent. Once judgment rolls out, it's too late. Nothing can be done at that point except to submit to the punishment. If you read the book of Revelation, you know. When all the judgments begin to fall, people don't turn to God. They curse God. And so God responds in verse 17. Look, I have released an army of serpents against you. They slither like vipers across the land. There is no hope of charming them. There is no escape from their deadly bite. You see, that's why sin is treacherous. And when you're enslaved by it and you refuse to repent and turn to God, the day comes when it's too late. There's a big movement afoot in the world today, even in the evangelical realm of Christianity, that, oh, well, there is no hell. Everybody's going to be saved. But there's nothing in the Bible that gives us any sense that God's just going to go, oh, well. And so Jeremiah responds in verse 18, There is no cure for my grief. My heart breaks for what I see and hear. Listen, my Lord, don't you hear the daughter of our people weeping? Crying out to you from exile? Is the eternal no longer in Zion? Does her king no longer reside there? What a sad thing. Reminds me of the words of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk, you might recall, well, we did a study of this a couple of years ago when we were looking at his prophecy and he saw the wickedness of Judah and he cried out to God. He said, why don't you stop this? When are you going to do something about the sin? I mean, people are ripping people off and... There's no justice in the land and people are loving their sin. What are you going to do about it? And God says, I am going to do something about it. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And when Habakkuk heard that, he went, oh, not them. They will utterly destroy us. Besides, they are far more wicked than we are. Why would you use even worse sinners to punish and judge us? And God's answer was, so you will learn the horror of idolatry and wickedness, and I would say the treachery of sin, that you might forsake it forever. And in the end of Habakkuk's prophecy, you remember we read a minute ago from Jeremiah that the fig tree would not bear fruit, the vine would, remember that? And it was Habakkuk who probably was a contemporary of Jeremiah, probably compared notes, talked to each other, maybe had prayer meetings. And he said, I listened and began to feel sick with my fear. 
My insides churned. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones. I stood there shaking. Now I wait eagerly and quietly for the day of distress. I sit and wait for the time when disaster strikes those who attack my people. Even if the fig tree does not blossom and there are no grapes on the vine, if the olive trees fail to give fruit and there are The fields produce no food. If the flocks die from the fold and there is no cattle in the stalls, I will still rejoice in the eternal. I will rejoice in the God who saves me. The eternal Lord is my strength. And he has made my feet like that of a deer. And he allows me to walk on high places. You see the difference? That even in the terror of judgment, when when someone trusts God, they have hope. And so back to our text. But Jeremiah, why have the people provoked me with their dark and evil practices? Why do they worship those handcrafted idols, those worthless gods? Jeremiah understands that the time for Judah to repent and change her ways is past. She has had her last chance, but that doesn't stop him from pleading with God. He says, the harvest is over, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. And because the daughter of my people is being ripped apart, I'm ripped apart from within. A dark and cold hurt arises. From without, I'm strangled by the horror of it all. Is there no healing medicine in Gilead? King James, is there no balm in Gilead? No balm that could heal my people? Is there no physician who can help? Why is there no healing for the wounds inflicted upon my people? Ladies and gentlemen, there is a great physician. And later on, Jeremiah would write these words in 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, says the eternal God. Plans for peace, not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Never forget that. There is a physician. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's only true for those who are in covenant relation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who refuse to repent and believe the day is coming. And when it does, it is too late. Now is the time. The idea of universal salvation for all, that there is no judgment, that is a myth. The Bible teaches emphatically that God is going to eliminate all sin from his future kingdom. It is so bad, it's not going through. You have to understand the heartache and the cost to God to save us. He's not going through that again. Jesus died once for all. But he's not letting sin pass in. He's not going to go, oh, it's okay. He gives us a chance 
to let it be judged in us when we trust Christ. He judges that sin in Christ. Then he forgives us. But he also demands that we turn to him and walk in faith. And that's why we as believers still have trouble, don't we? Because we have to learn how to trust him. And so we walk in faith. And when things don't go sweet and easy like we'd like them to, we walk by faith. Don't be deceived. God does love everyone. That's a fact revealed in John 3.16. Right up there. For God so loved the world. Right? Do you believe that? Jesus bore the penalty, a cruel penalty for our sins, in his body on the cross. Not so that everyone will escape eternal judgment, but that those who put their trust in him might receive eternal life. Passing out of death into Life, he's the only way, the only truth, and he is the life. And if sin has got you ensnared, your only way out is through Jesus, who gives you the Holy Spirit and changes your heart. Because if you're like me, you sometimes look in the mirror and you go, why am I like this? And my only deliverance is that God gives me a change. It's like Wayne was saying, the hyssop is a sign that God must do it. You have to trust him. And that means you have to surrender to him. Because it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. No one can come to the Father in peace except through Jesus. So don't let another moment pass being enslaved to sin. If you're not a Christian today, turn. Turn to Jesus and believe. If you are a Christian and you're still struggling with stuff, turn to Jesus and believe. Paul says that by the Spirit we put the deeds of the flesh to death, we will live. You can't do it without the Spirit. You can't just go, oh, God, I won't do this anymore. I'm sorry. I promise. You'll fail. But if by the Spirit, every day when you trust Him and as those temptations come, you say, Lord, not my will, but Thy will be done. He will set you free from sin and death. He will raise you in power to overcome evil in your own life. And help you in the world in which we live. Let us pray. Father, in Jesus' name, the word of God has been proclaimed. And now I pray, Holy Spirit, stir in hearts till they're sick and tired of fighting you. Move in their lives, Lord. And I know that there are people today that felt this in their heart maybe felt uncomfortable, felt convicted, felt even condemned, felt guilty, felt shameful. May they realize those are your gifts to turn them back to light and truth. And God, as they do so, I pray that you will minister 
by the Spirit, faith into their lives so that Jesus Christ can be revealed to them as sufficient for everything that they need. And by salvation through him, be changed. To the glory of God, we pray. Amen.